My name is Rebecca Sanborn-Stone. I'm with the Orton Family Foundation in lovely Vermont today. We are thrilled to have so many people joining us for a special conference call today, jointly offered by Community Matters and the Citizens Institute on Rural Design. For those of you who aren't familiar with that program, this is a program that's been run by the National Endowment for the Arts for over 20 years, bringing technical assistance and skills to rural communities that are looking to improve their quality of life and use design to enhance small towns. So we're very excited to be partnering with them. This is the second call of three in a series this summer designed to help Citizens Institute on Rural Design workshop communities plan for their workshops. We've just selected four towns to host 2013 workshops. They're all on the line with us today. And those workshops are going to be happening in the fall. So this call, along with the June call and the August call, are designed to help them, as well as everyone else on the line, with some skills necessary to run a successful community design project or a workshop. We will be following up with three additional calls, probably starting in December of this year, that will help communities with the implementation side of things as well. So after you do a workshop or get some great ideas, how, you, how do you put it into practice? I want to just give you a couple of logistical notes for today's call as well as one heads up for August as well. In August, we have a very special guest joining us, Ed McMahon of the Urban Land Institute, who will be talking about secrets of successful communities. For those of you who don't know him, He's a very well-noted speaker, one of the best thinkers and writers out there today on what towns can do to really make themselves unique and distinctive and successful. So we hope you'll all join. And as a special incentive, we're putting out resources to help towns organize listening parties, which are really very simple. You get some friends together, get together in a room to listen together, get some food, and have a great conversation about what you hear. As a special incentive, the Orton Family Foundation is happy to offer four $500 prizes to communities that do host listening parties and then decide to take some sort of action on the other end. So if you haven't received an email from us about that yet, we'll make sure there's a link going into the Google Doc today, and you should receive another email in the coming weeks. You can also go onto the Community Matters website to find out more about how to host a listening party and how to take advantage of that contest. All right, on to the nuts and bolts of today. There are just a couple requests I would make of everyone. Most of you have heard me say several times, please put yourselves on mute, which will ensure that we do not have a lot of background noise and that we can invite all of you to join us in the conversation once we join the Q&A portion. You can do that by pressing the mute button on your phone or by pressing star six. And when it's time to open up the lines and have questions from the audience, I'll happily tell you how to take yourselves off mute. You should all also have received a link to a Google Doc, which is how we like to take notes and facilitate the conversation on Community Matters calls. If you're joining us for the first time, this might be new, but we welcome all of you to go into that document, follow along today as we take notes, and especially to add your own thoughts. We like taking collaborative notes, so if you hear something that someone else isn't capturing, type it in. If you hear a great quote or something that you think should be recorded there for posterity, please help us capture it. And if you have links and resources to add, make sure they get into the bottom of the document as well. The one thing I'll note is that Google Docs max out at 50 active participants at a time. So if you are not planning to type and actively participate, we'd ask you to close out of there right now. Just wait a few seconds and let someone else get on. You'll still be able to open it up as a reader. So with that, I think I'm just going to launch into the great programming we have for today. I'm going to turn it over first to Dave Hohenschau, who's a senior associate at the Orton Family Foundation. And Dave will talk a little bit about how to identify and discover and uncover the values and vision of your community. And then we'll pass it straight to Peter Flinker, a fantastic planner and designer and thinker about vision and values and how you incorporate them into the actual design work and projects you're going to do in your community. So let me pass it to Dave without further ado. <clears throat> Thanks, Becca. And hello to everybody out there. It's pretty exciting to see so many people calling in today. So I'm going to talk uh, for very briefly about using community values in a planning or design project. And uh, that's basically two 
two key things to talk about. One is what are community values and why are they helpful to this kind of project? And the other thing is how actually do you identify values through community engagement? So part one, what are community values? Why are they helpful? Start with a couple of definitions. First of all, values. Values are broad preferences that help you understand appropriate courses of action. Uh, and hopefully everybody listening out there who's involved in some kind of planning project can see right away why this might be a useful thing for making decisions in your project. Community values are basically the same thing, broad preferences that help you understand appropriate courses of action, uh, but they're specifically about your community, and hopefully they've been actually developed by members of your community. So just an example of what a value might represent. Uh, some things could be things like uh, we value feeling safe in our community. We value feeling uh, encouraging a healthy lifestyle. Uh, we value our history. These are all uh, just simple themes about different kinds of values that you might identify about your community. And obviously, each one is a theme. It doesn't represent everything about your community, and that's why actually identifying values in a project means that you're identifying a whole set of values that maybe several up to a dozen that actually represent all the different aspects of, of living in your community. Uh, and this set of values, uh, if you use it well, can really give you direction and help you make decisions in your project. And a classic example of how this plays out on the ground and right down to uh, incredible level of detail and maybe everybody's aware of this kind of example is salmon in the Pacific Northwest. So hundreds and hundreds of communities in the Pacific Northwest really, really value salmon. And uh, I'm sure everyone's familiar with this example, but it plays out down to like the size of the pea gravel you buy when you're laying a roadbed for a new road. So uh, it has this implication that plays out in the planning level and the design and construction level all the way down into the details. So how you build streets, how you build sidewalks, where you connect your downspouts, and what you do with all the rainwater running off of a uh, new subdivision, for example. And none of that work is very cheap. It's all more expensive than what most people would consider conventional planning and design. So uh, just an example of how when a community decides that it actually values something, one thing above others, it means not only are they going to prioritize that thing, they're also going to be willing to spend more money on it in some cases. So um, other examples of how a particular value might inform uh, planning, physical planning or design, the example of a value that describes a welcoming and inclusive community might play out on the ground in terms of uh, designing for universal accessibility or additional seating or certain kinds of seating. It might play out as having uh, street signs or directional signs in multiple languages. Um, if there's a value about a healthy and active community, that might play out as bike lanes and bike racks on the street. Or, and this is one that everybody is probably familiar with, is if a community values his it's a history, then that community is likely to put a lot more time and resources into uh, protecting a historic district, for example, or historic buildings. And this is pretty common. Everybody probably knows the kind of extra effort that goes into of, uh, valuing the history of a community. So community values represent what's important to people in the community. And because of this, they give you this frame of reference to make decisions. So it helps you know what the priorities are. And what's key in there is that they make your decisions seem more relevant to people in your community. So if you're talking to people about, for example, units per acre or traffic counts, they're all going to glaze over. <clears throat> but if you're talking to people about celebrating history or uh, creating more jobs, things that people care about, they're going to be much more quick to listen and talk about it. So just a little bit about what it takes to actually identify these values through community engagement. 
It depends a lot on your timing, of course, with any community engagement program, uh, whether you can spend a, a night on this or several months. But typically what you'd be looking to do is engage the community in answering a very simple question, which is, what matters to you about this community? Uh, or it could be something like, what makes you feel connected or attached to this community? Or what's important to you about this place? And that dialogue is the beginning of a whole conversation. And the follow-up question to that is even simpler. It's why. So if you can ask the first question and then after the answer ask why, you're really forcing people to clarify themselves and really articulate what they are saying and why what they are saying is important to them. And I promise you that if you do this, you can do this on the street, you can do it in a cafe, you can take this question to a community forum or a small discussion group in people's living rooms, you'll hear really, really cool stuff about your community. And some of it will be stuff you've heard before, and some of it will be brand new to you. And it's, it's a really wonderful process that reveals all kinds of cool stuff. So at the Orton Foundation, we call this storytelling, because that's really how it unfolds. People start telling stories about where they live and why they feel connected to that place. And if you look online at our, uh, the Foundation's website, we've got all kinds of resources with lots of details about different kinds of formats you can use and different methods for bringing this approach into a community process. And the bottom line about why this works well is that people love to talk. They love to talk to each other. They love to listen to each other's stories. Kind of an ancient human tradition is to build relationships by talking to each other. So there's a bit of a leveraging opportunity in taking this approach because you also have this opportunity to build social capacity and civic capacity by building relationships between people. Um, and, of course, you may not have a few months, you may not have the capacity to roll this out on a big scale. So in some cases you might need to borrow from some old past project. Maybe there's a vision already in place where you can identify values from that work. And the important thing, of course, is to bring whatever it is that you borrow from some other project or from some small group that's kind of come up with a draft list is that you bring that out to the community and at, and at least give them a chance to review or prioritize what those values are. So there's a little bit of buy-in there. Um, and it's also really important to clarify what those values mean in the context of your project. So articulating kind of the attributes of that value, how it shows up on the ground in the downtown, if you're doing a downtown project or whatever scope frame of reference your project happens to be capturing. Uh, just a little bit more about how uh, values identification can help you articulate things related to physical planning and design is to use cues from the built environment in that conversation about what's important to you. So you can bring uh, photographs, images, sketches into the conversation and have people look at those and point to those and talk about what they see and what's important to them in that context. Uh, you can bring a map into a, a small group or into any kind of discussion. Uh, there's all kinds of resources about community mapping, but just the power of people sitting around a map pointing at places in their community that are important to them can really draw out a lot of information. And the alternative to that is to do that live, like walking down the street with a group of people, doing some kind of walkabout or a tour of a certain neighborhood and holding that discussion uh, basically in real time. Um, so there's all kinds of, this is just a little sampling, there's all kinds of extra resources and details about how to do some of these things on our the Foundation's website, but I'll, I'll just wrap it there and hope that we can get into more discussion in the Q&A session. So thank you. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Steve. 
just a really quick reminder for those of you who are just joining us, welcome. This is the Community Matters and Citizens Institute on Rural Design call on designing for community vision and values. I just want to remind those of you who are just joining to please put yourselves on mute so we can cut down on any background noise. Press mute on your phone or star six. And with that, I want to thank Dave again for that great introduction. We'll get back to him on questions. And in the meantime, I want to pass it to Peter Flinker, who's principal at Dodson & Flinker Landscape Architects. Peter? Thanks, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's really exciting to be here. This is something new for me, um, and I hope I can uh, keep my train of thought as we move forward. The, uh, I'm going to talk about two projects that we've been involved with that both heavily include uh, values and vision in the process. Uh, the first is something called the Borderlands Village Innovation Project, which was actually sponsored by the Orton Foundation. The second is the Turner's Falls Livability Plan in Massachusetts. I think in, in both of these, we discovered that the process of defining a vision and value can really serve as a rich source of planning and design ideas that then can carry into the actual design projects that come out of it. And this is particularly important in small rural towns where your final project is not likely to change a whole lot about the physical landscape. You're really building on what's already there. So if you can identify what's important about that, what people care about, it really is a great source of making those small interventions that will make a big difference in the end. Um, by contrast, I think a lot of the issues that towns are dealing with um, over the last 50 years are because the values of the t traditional downtown or traditional or small town life were in conflict with the new values of you know automobile oriented suburban development and that carried out into very different and conflicting design solutions so really what towns are struggling with now is how can we understand the underlying values and then build on those with the design that comes out of them um, so again the first project is something called the borderlands Village Innovation Project. It was on the border of Rhode Island and Connecticut, and the Orton Foundation selected two towns, one on each side of the border, uh, to do this values-based uh, visioning and design project. Uh, so it really started with looking at the, trying to map out the heart and soul of each of these communities, and we did that with a series of workshops where we sat down with maps, and we, as Dave suggested, we invited people to come in with photographs of the town and really talked a lot about where are the key places that really represent the heart and soul of the community, and can you put those on a map? And those might be specific places like a, a cafe or a, a big tree that's a landmark in the community or a beautiful view or a beach or something like that, or they could be a, a corridor or a region within the town. But mapping those out really is a great start because it, it's something that everybody can agree on. And then based on that, we followed up by going around and taking pictures, and then at a subsequent workshop, uh, polling people using a keypad electronic polling process to see which of these um, heart and soul assets they really felt was the most important. And that really gave us a great basis for understanding what should be protected, but also what might be the foundation for future growth in the town. Uh, in one of the towns, Exeter, Rhode Island, we followed this up with a, a game-playing process, which was another great way to move from values to vision. And essentially what happened is we turned the whole map of the town into a game board and then gave people playing pieces that represented the amount of development that could be built under existing zoning. And this is something that's been done around the country and um, is, is very uh, exciting to people because... Most people don't understand zoning and planning issues that well unless they deal with them as part of the planning board. And this is a way for them to literally touch future development and manipulate it and figure out where it might go. And what we learned is that most people were shocked to realize how much development is allowed under the current zoning and how basically the entire town could be covered with um, sort of low-density sprawl. Uh, and then given those playing pieces representing the existing growth, they were they really saw immediately how you could rearrange those, put them more densely in some locations so that other locations could be preserved. And this carried forth into the, the third phase of the project, which was actually looking at real places in town and, and assessing their potential 
to uh, absorb development to create a village. And we worked with the town over the course of two years on identifying potential village locations, assessing the amount of growth that could be there, and then most importantly, thinking of all the implications for the town in terms of tax base, in terms of fiscal impacts and demand for services, in terms of traffic and other elements. And then through that process, people basically agreed that a village would make a lot of sense. And as a result of having this process that's rooted in the essential values, uh, those values became the filter for looking at the different choices for how a village could be laid out, where it could go in the town, and how it could be designed. And so it was very easy in the end to see which alternative was the best fit for the values that had been expressed up in the beginning of the process. And as a result, people could say, yes, let's do this one because that best fits our values. And as a result, last October, the town council unanimously, unanimously approved a new zoning ordinance that would allow village development to take place. So that was very successful. Um, the last project I'm going to talk about quickly is in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts, which was something called the Turner's Falls Livability Plan. And there we got at values by setting up a working group that was uh, comprised of uh, members of all the different key stakeholder groups in the town, and we had a series of meetings with the working group that were also open to the public, where we looked at different alternatives for this historic mill village on the Connecticut River, and came up with ideas and for, for recreating and, and rebuilding the downtown. And as a result, some of the things that came out of there were very simple, straightforward ideas like repainting uh, crosswalks with uh, painted themes that would reflect what's going on in the river, new bike racks that were done by local artists, and a lot of sort of small, uh, quick wins, as they say, which could be implemented uh, without a great deal of money. And based on that, there's been a lot of interest in uh, new people coming into the town, seeing what's going on, and, and being willing to invest in, uh, in downtown redevelopment. So I'll stop there, because we want to get on to your questions. Great. Thank you so much, Peter. So I think we have a lot of great flatter here for discussion, and I see more questions coming into the Google Doc, which is wonderful. I want to remind people of that. If you do have questions for David and Peter as you're hearing them talk, please feel free to go to the Google Doc and take a look, add your questions in there. Uh, if you have answers for people who've already asked questions, please type those in as well, and we will get to as many as we can today. Uh, I want to start with one that did come in from Michael in Oregon. I know Michael was going to have to leave us early. Perhaps he's still on the line. He had a great question about how to make sure visions are not just meaningless drivel. I think we've all probably had that experience or heard of communities that come up with very generic visions. We want a stronger future, something like that, and, and we all know that's not very actionable. Uh, Michael, are you still on the line with us? Okay, well, let me just ask his question for him, and we'll make sure to capture some good notes. Uh, Dave, I want to toss this to you to start, and then we can see what Peter has to add. But we're really wondering how you can make sure you're creating a very unique and defining vision that is not that kind of meaningless drivel, while at the same time not going so far down the opposite end of the spectrum that you're just representing the views of some stakeholders or you're going to end up with conflict. Can you speak to that tension at all? <clears throat> yeah, sure. Um, I think the key in there is, is articulating the values in a, in a specific way that is, in a way that is specific to each community. Like you can have a value that is about we like more jobs. And of course that sounds very broad. Um, but what you can, what you can drill into in that community dialogue is how does that actually show up here? What does that look like? So, um, articulating actually the attributes of a value is a good way to kind of clarify what it could mean in a specific place. And of course, you know, beyond jobs, if it's something more about physical manifestations of a value, like if you're talking about history or the natural environment, um, there are obviously more specific answers to that kind of theme about how that shows up in your community. 
great. That's really helpful. I think probably most of us can picture that, Joe. If you're in a particular community and the value is history, it might mean one particular storefront that's really old or a historic building on Main Street, that sort of thing. Could you give us any examples of what detailed values would look like for some of those more generic topics, something like local economies or healthy lifestyles? Um, is this for me again, Becca? Yeah, I was just going to ask you to go a little further, and then we'll see what sure. Peter can add. Sure. Um, I was going to say that typically you might ask somebody, like, what's important to you about this community? And they would say, and a lot of people will say, oh, I think speed bumps are very important. And it's kind of a mistake to just stop the conversation there and write down speed bumps. Um, and this is why it's really important to actually set this up as a discussion so that you can say, why are those important to you? And, you know, just for a pretend conversation here, they'd say, oh, well, traffic's fast on my street. Well, what, what is, how does that impact you? Why is that important to you in this community? And if you keep asking that question, you kind of get eventually to the fact that whoever this person is, you know, wants kids to feel safe out on the sidewalk, or they want, you know, the seniors to be able to cross the street and walk into town. And you start getting at that kind of higher level of detail. And when you get there, you can say, all right, this is this sounds like a good value that applies to the whole community. What are the other, besides, you know, speed bumps or slower traffic, what are the other ways that that can show up? What are the other ways that uh, seniors feeling welcome and safe in this community could show up? That's where you start to articulate those details more. Right. That's really helpful. Peter, let me pass this one to you. What experience have you had with this issue of making sure you get specific and get down to what people really care about in the town? Yeah, well, I was going to say it really requires a lot of discipline in, in planning, you know, whether you're professionals or, or uh, citizen participants, to, to really go beyond values. Because values are things we can agree on, right? I mean, everybody... Like, for instance, everybody agrees that we like our rural character. If it's a small town, we want to protect the views and quality of life and so on. But it really takes a lot of discipline to then identify specifically what needs to be protected to maintain that rural character or whatever it is. And then what what will change if, about that if we don't do anything, you know, to change our zoning and so on. So I like... I think I mentioned earlier the idea of scenario planning is really a valuable tool because you can look at all the different possibilities for the future and then test those against your values and your vision. So, I mean, the first scenario, which is often useful to look at, is what is your current zoning or your current plan going to give you? And to sort of imagine 50 years hence, what is the town going to look like if we let nature take its course? And then to say, well, is that going to preserve the values that we share as a community? And then you can imagine all kinds of different scenarios of what happens if we, as I said in Exeter, we uh, work with them to imagine what would happen if we channel growth into a few locations and try to preserve the countryside. What would the implications be for the whole town? And that had, you know, that had different effects on different values depending on the extent to which it was done. I mean, for some people, that was a great thing in terms of creating walkable centers with smaller houses that young people and old people could live in. For others whose values were more about living in the open landscape, it was seen as something of a threat. You know, how is this going to change my lifestyle? Um, but by looking at it objectively on paper, literally, um, it's much less of a threat than if you're just talking in general terms. Right. There's another question in here. Actually, a couple of people have had similar threads. And let me just ask, whoever has music, please put yourself on mute. Thank you. Um, is Pam from Vermont on the line with us today? Pam, if you are, you can take yourself off mute by pressing pound six on your phone. Let me start reading Pam's question or asking it for her, and she can always jump in if she's on the line. Uh, Pam says, our community is struggling with the need for change and, quote, progress, jobs, opportunities, different models, et cetera, and a potential rapid influx of businesses, some of which may conflict with beliefs and values. So, for example, there's a biomed company with clean rooms that will not be likely to hire locally and may deal with toxic products. So Pam's question is, how do we balance 
the business at any price mentality, which could be the value of some people in the community, with a slow down and look at this approach, or the values of one group of stakeholders perhaps versus another one. And she says, in particular, she believes that there's a way through this, but people have to get beyond absolutist positions. This seems to me like a challenging issue when you're crafting a vision, when you do get down to some real issues within those values, people believing one is more important than another or some conflict there. Um, Peter or Dave, would either of you like to comment on that and, and how you start breaking down those absolutist positions? This is this is a hard one because it's essentially going beyond planning into politics because you're really talking about what's good for one person may not be good for another person or a group of people. Um, so it's, it's not an easy answer. I think... If if anyone's not heard of the Consensus Building Institute in Cambridge, you might look up their website because they have some very interesting ideas and they've worked with the Orton Foundation uh, in the past. But but one of them, which I really think is valuable, is understanding the difference between people's positions and what they say they want and the underlying issues behind those positions. And a, and a big, really valuable thing in, in any kind of a workshop setting or even on one-on-one -on -one conflict resolution is try to understand, you know, if, if someone is saying, I don't want any development in my town, to get them to articulate what it is that they're really concerned about. It might be something much simpler, like they don't want to see a, a neighbor next to them, or they don't want to see more traffic on their street. And you can't deal with someone who just says, I don't want anything to happen. But you can deal with it if you can identify a specific problem or, or process that can be mitigated. So I think that that idea is uh, helpful at many different levels. Great, Dave. Do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things Peter mentioned is is about understanding people's positions, and this is kind of uh, one of the benefits of starting with community values because uh, if you're familiar with negotiation negotiation theory. What you're basically doing with values is setting up common interests rather than uh, a, a list of positions, basically. And if you can start with interests, then you can negotiate towards uh, a good agreement. Um, so, and values, if you use them well and if they're articulated well, can play all the way through in this whole decision-making process. So, uh, one of the things you can use values for for example, is to understand the trade-off between different uh, situations. So if you're saying uh, yes or no to a development, or maybe you're saying yes to one development and no to a, a different development. So there's all kinds. There's always trade-offs in there, you're, and you're never going to get kind of the utopian solution, of course. But if you look at how those options impact your values, for example, then you can compare apples to apples and understand. Uh, which option is going to serve your community values the best. Uh, and the way, and you can drill into that even more by, if you understand how those, how those options impact your values, you also have the choice of improving an option. So if you look at, uh, some new development and say, oh, that's going to, you know, ruin community character, for example, then you have the choice of negotiating with that project about well, how can we say yes to you and have you not negatively impact this particular thing about our community that we love? That's great. Thanks so much. Uh, Peter's great suggestion of Consensus Building Institute is certainly one to look into as well, and we'll make sure that link gets into the Google Doc for those of you who are not familiar with that organization. Oh, we've talked a lot about what values and visions are, what they look like. One thing we haven't talked much about is who's actually doing this work of uncovering them okay. and discovering them. Um, I want to take a minute to delve into this a little bit, and if you have just joined or taken yourself off mute, please put yourself back on, star six. So we have a few people asking the same question from different angles, really. One person's asking, how do you start a citizen's movement to do values and vision work? Someone else is asking, how do I get the leaders on board in the community? Someone else asks, if I'm in charge of doing this values and visioning work, 
what role should I play? How do I help guide and lead without trying to commandeer it? Um, I'm wondering if Dave wanted to take a stab at commenting on this. What's the best way to start a values envisioning process in a community, and, and who's the best person or the best group of people to lead it? Who should be involved? <laughs> it's kind of a cop-out to say everyone, but it's kind of true. Um, I'll, maybe I'll respond specifically to some of those some of those questions, like starting a citizens movement, or you know, kind of overcoming apathy. Maybe is is a challenge. There's always the option of starting small and looking for some small success to kind of build trust and build interest in what you're trying to do, rather than you know some projects try to go for the home run right off the bat, but maybe you just need to go for a base hit instead. Um, getting leaders on board that's always a that's always kind of a contextual game of where the leaders are at. Um, if if the leaders tend to be a clubhouse situation, then you're, you're normally trying to do that citizen's movement first and creating so much uh, overwhelming evidence of support for what you're doing that it's only natural for the leaders to want to be associated with what you're doing. Um, the question about how to lead rather than commandeer, Am I, did I get that question right? Yes, that's it. Uh, that's a tough one. I mean, it's a there's kind of the leadership model of facilitating and empowering everyone around you to kind of take a leadership role. And if that's what you're doing, then you're doing a great job. At the same time, uh, you know, volunteerism is tough to carry through a project, and there's definitely times where you kind of have to hold the whole basket from one stage to another. So the risk of kind of commandeering a project though is if you kind of take over and run with something and then try to bring it back to the community you'll often find that no matter how good it is, whatever it is you've done it's going to get rejected because it just didn't come from the people that you're trying to work with so there's that's a tricky balance of trying to carry a project along and taking the risk of having the whole thing go back to the drawing board. Great. Peter, do you have anything to add or in the examples and projects you've worked on? When well, has it been most successful? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the Exeter one is a good example. I think there, as in many towns, the leadership in the town, you know, it's, it's their volunteer counselors and planning board members, and they're, they're simply so overworked that they don't really have time to do visioning anyway. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons it was successful is that there was another group of people that was interested in pursuing, um, you know, a, a larger vision for the town. But they worked very carefully at the beginning to involve the town council and the other elected leadership of the town and to empower them to set up a working group uh, that would be separate. But it was essentially something that was blessed and empowered by the leadership in the town before it started. So it wasn't seen as a threat to their authority, but rather something that was empowered by their authority. And then they worked very hard to make sure that that working group represented um, all the different groups in the town so that there was nobody who could stand up in the end and say, oh, you didn't think about us, or you didn't think about us. And so they consciously looked at who were the stakeholders and can we get at least one person from each of those groups? Uh, and this is, again, something that comes out of the consensus building model where you don't need to have everybody involved. You just need to have one person who represents the interests of each party and is seen as representing those interests. And in that way, you know, there's this, this sense of, of empowerment and inclusion because nobody has time to go to all the meetings at a town. But you, you really feel like if there's somebody there representing your interests, uh, you'll trust it. Great. That's really helpful. I want to switch gears again. We also have a few questions about what happens or what you do after you have identified a vision and identified some values. So a lot of communities have already done some of this work, as Dave alluded to, or even if you haven't, let's say you go out tomorrow, you start, and then you end up with a vision in hand. 
now you still have another challenge in front of you, which is how you go from a vision on paper to an actual process and project and putting it into practice. Peter, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I guess anybody who's, who's listening who's been involved in planning, um, either in the public sector or in a private business, you, you know about the strategic planning process where you, you set goals and objectives, and then you create an action plan with a list of items that you want to achieve. And each of those action items has a, a specific um, objective, and it has a timetable, and ideally it has um, someone who actually is responsible for doing it. And this, that last point is where these things typically break down. Um, and I think you've probably all seen the plans that sit on the, the library shelf or the shelf of your office that were never implemented because there wasn't somebody who actually was prepared to take on those those actions. They might have been listed, but they didn't really take ownership. So one of the things we've learned and what we've done in, in Exeter and, and Turner's Falls is when you're doing the action plan, involve that stakeholder group that was involved in the planning process so that the actions reflect the, the values and everything that came through the process and the people who were involved. And then if there is, if there's nobody who t to take on a particular action, uh, bite the bullet and cut it out. There's no sense focusing, including actions, where you have nobody to, to take ownership and to make it happen. Because especially in small towns, a lot of it has to be done by volunteers. And if they're not excited enough about it at the beginning, they're not going to be excited, you know, six months or a year later <laughs> to do the follow-up. So, it's, it, again, it takes a lot of discipline not to include all those great ideas that develop during the workshop process. But it's much better, I think, to be successful with two or three actions than to have a list of 20 that never get done. Great. Dave, do you want to add anything to that? I was just—I was actually going to support that by mentioning some of my projects. My most successful follow-through projects have been ones where there was actually only three or four action ideas that were chosen to be implemented. It's the ones that have like 30 or 100 ideas that really don't go anywhere. And the reason that those, you know, those projects ended up with three or four is because they did exactly what Peter said. They went and looked for champions, basically, to adopt the idea and run with it. So it's a huge, uh, hugely important aspect of a process is to bring in champions. Or if there aren't champions and an idea is so good, to somehow demonstrate the enthusiasm that the community has for the idea enough that a local organization realizes how popular they will become if they do pick up that idea. Great. That sounds really wonderful. Um, it reminds me of a phrase that's often attributed to William Faulkner about writing, the phrase, murder your darlings. So for writers who are out there coming up with so many ideas, you've got to be able to let them go if you want to get to really good writing. And it sounds like the same thing applies for community planning and design. Your community will come up with so many great ideas and things to do but if you really want to make progress, get rid of most of them. Um, I could just well, add we, a little bit. Yeah. Sorry, Becca. Just going to add no, a little bit. Part of this question is also kind of about getting people to participate in the first place. And I just wanted to mm -hmm. throw in there, you know, the idea that uh, going to where people are and making these kinds of activities interesting and fun um, and not you know, a meeting in council chambers, but a meeting in the park, or any any kind of turning the meeting inside out and making it different and interesting and meaningful at the same time is really, really important. So, And by meaningful, I mean people go away feeling like they've actually contributed to the process rather than just, uh, you know, have their what they said written down and then forgotten about. That's a great point. We had a question come up on this, or a related question anyway. Ken from Montana, are you with us on the phone today? Uh, yes. Do you want to ask your question? Um, well, you just really answered it, I think. I, I was recently in Australia at a um, Livable Cities conference there, and um, Jason, one of the founders of uh, Better Blocks from Dallas, 
was one of the keynoters, and I was really impressed. He's, you know, it's a bit of a bit of an outlaw kind of a mentality, um, but at the same time, they do small scale things and win the win the hearts of the city council by doing these little pop up, you know, guerrilla action kind of projects uh, that often lead to permanent things. Um, and so far, most of the councils have, you know, turned turned the, their their eyes the other way and let them do it because it's not a I mean, they're temporary. They're not permanent. That uh, I mentioned in the notes there, he set up the, the website, you know, fairly official-sounding website, the Dallas Metropolitan Transit Authority or something like that, just as a web developer with no no group or anything, and it eventually led to a board and a couple of Tiger grants to bring the streetcars back to Dallas. But he particularly works in um, disadvantaged areas, too, so which I think helps because there's less, you know, upscale people that are going to get and knows that it's joined us. He's working in uh, those kind of environments. That's great. Thanks for sharing, Ken. Uh, so we have about 12 minutes left on the phone. I want to see if there's anyone on the line who really has a burning question that they'd like to ask Dave or Peter. If you are on the line listening in and you'd like to ask something, please feel free to take yourself off mute and jump in. Hello, this is Don and Seguin. Hello. Please go ahead. We have a we have a wonderful, great, traditional old downtown, and we have a real problem with a lot of our buildings are are owned by absentee owners. They live out of state. They, some of them even live out of the country, and and we have such great potential to rejuvenate our downtown, and we can't seem to motivate these people to sell to reasonable buyers at a reasonable price. Do you have any kind of uh, solutions or ideas that we can use to put towards that effort to get those people to sell to a small business? Because we do have we have inquiries daily about these buildings, and and frankly, the, these people want much too much of it and they, for their buildings, and they're, they're absentee, and they really don't. They're owned by estates, or they're owned by foreigners, or they're owned by people who just really don't care. Do you have any solutions for that? I think this is Peter. I, I, I think the most successful um, model, unfortunately, is one-to-one outreach and finding somebody in the community, I don't know whether it's paid staff or volunteer, who can go and talk to people one-on-one. And often, if you can find somebody who's um, on their same, I wouldn't say economic level, but who talks their language, whatever language that is, uh, and can make the argument on behalf of the town of how important this is and make them feel like they, you know, as an absentee landowner, um, they can make a contribution to the town and they have an important role to play and sort of appeal to their public spiritedness. Like that's, that's, I think, the most successful way probably to make that happen. And the other thing is just to um, figure out the economic equation. Um, if they're not doing anything except sitting on that property, it's for a reason probably. Um, a lot of them, it's making them some money, um, and it's a tax write-off, or depending on the situation, and they have really have no economic incentive to change because to improve it or to sell it is going to cost them more than they're making, perhaps. So you have to figure out what what's going to change that equation. Maybe that might be the availability of some kind of public subsidy. Maybe it might be lining up a local developer who is willing to immediately jump on it and make it a cash offer. Um, but it's really, I think, those two things, appealing to their, their public spiritedness and then making the economics work uh, to their benefit. Thanks. Dave, do you want to add anything? I, I, I mean, I think what Peter said is probably the best, is the most positive strategy around that. I mean, the alternative is there's lots of examples of small towns creating uh, bylaws or tax policies that uh, somehow inflict some kind of penalty on on folks who are doing that with their buildings. So, um, and yeah, you don't touch heavy-handed, and it's usually kind of your last resort after doing things like Peter suggested. That's great. Our colleague Ariana McBride is listening in and, and just shared a quote from Ed McMahon, our speaker next month, to put in a little plug. Um, his quote is about small towns losing their character bit by bit, but also noting that they can get it back bit by bit or project by project. So if you start with one building and build on early successes, you will get there eventually. 
Um, great. Anybody else listening in with a question for Dave or Peter? Um, and you can hello, talk. this is... Hello? Yep, hello. Go ahead. Hi, this is um, Tiffany Capehart. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and um, I'm with the planning department planning department here. Uh, we are working on our um, comprehensive plan update, and we are moving into the phase where we're writing guiding principles for that comprehensive plan, and uh, we want to have the community weigh in on those. What creative ways um, have you seen or used where community members can comment on um, guiding principles in that way? Because as you imagine, I mean, it can get very, to have a community try to wordsmith, um, you know, written guiding, guiding principles can be kind of difficult. So what creative ways can we have the community weigh in on those? I, I could answer that. This is Dave. Um, I'll tell you the I'll tell you one that may not be very relevant, but is really fun to explain as a community I worked with. That's uh, where there was multiple languages spoken in that community. We actually had the guiding principles translated into another language and then back again just to see what would happen. And they came out sounding so beautifully simple and perfect that nobody had anything to say about them. Um, in terms of actually shopping around kind of a draft of guiding principles. Um, mm -hmm. It's always tough. You don't want people to kind of bit by bit tear it apart. So usually a good way to do that is to, to kind of pull people on their kind of level of support for a particular statement, whether it's, you know, they feel very strongly in favor or strongly against. Um, that's a pretty classic approach, and you always open-ended comments in response to that. Um, the more probably fun ways to do it that may uh, may or may not be as meaningful in terms of getting to a result is things like putting up the guiding principle, like writing the guiding principles on a bunch of marble jars and having giving people five marbles and telling them to vote on their favorite ones at a fair. You know, we're doing a project like that in Gardner, Maine right now where they're doing a whole carnival around those kinds of ideas. And some of them are actually reviewing guiding principles based on, like, a bingo game, I think. So there's definitely creative outlets out there for that kind of thing. It's always a tough balance between making that kind of feedback meaningful and using it to good end. But it certainly gets people into it and thinking about it in a more, in a richer way. I think one one thing we'd like to do it in a workshop setting. If you're having workshops with, you know, up to 100 people, you can break them into small groups, and have each group take one of your ideas or principles and talk about it very briefly, and do a little brainstorming about what what it means to the community, um, or what's good about it, or what's bad about it, or what are some examples of how this could play out, and then do it very quickly, and so and then to move from table to table and change change groups, kind of a speed dating approach, um, so that's exciting and upbeat and people don't get bogged down too much. But I think by letting people talk about the ideas rather than just sort of vote up and down, you also get an, a level of richness in terms of um, detail behind it and what they think it means. And sometimes you get a lot of information that you realize that what you thought it meant doesn't mean that to us, the people who are reading it. Uh, so if you have time to do that, that could be very helpful. Thank you. Great. You know, this is such a fun question, and there are so many dozens of great ideas out there for how to do this. So I really want to put in a plug and encourage everybody listening to dump your ideas into the Google Doc. Share whatever creative, fun stories, examples you have, and uh, the more the merrier. There's also a great point on here that someone had put in earlier. Monica from California, are you on the line with us? Yes, I am. It's a little bit of a transition here, but Monica, you are making a great point about not just engaging people in these one single issues, but continuing that. Do you want to talk a little bit about your idea? Um, sure. I work in one specific small town, about 8,000 people. And um, one of the things that we're finding out is the city comes in or the guiding coalitions come in for just a short term to plug a specific project or redevelopment. Um, community members don't really want to get engaged because they know it's not 
really for their benefit. They don't feel it for their benefit. So um, what we're finding is having conversations around smaller issues um, really kind of primes the pump and lets us build relationships with community members. And so we um, just engage community members in looking at what they want to see happening in their town and what gifts they have to contribute to make their little place a better place. So we use asset-based community development principles and practices. And it's being done all over the country um, with some remarkable successes. So. Great. Thank you for sharing. I, I think that's really important to keep in mind. It's a slightly different twist on the question we were talking about. By all means, use creative strategies to get feedback on principles and visions. But I really love Monica's thinking that you know, after you finish that one project, you don't want the momentum to end. So think about how you can build these long-term relationships, how you can talk to people about what they really care about and make it relevant so that they will stay engaged for the long haul and they'll be ready to sign up on those action steps. So great comments. Um, for those of you who are not in the Google Doc, we're, there's a really fascinating conversation going on on here about one of the questions we tackled midway through the call. So I encourage you all to go back on Add your own thoughts, add your own examples, links, stories, whatever you like. This document is going to stay live in perpetuity, so you can come back, get all the great ideas uh, that you've heard mentioned on the call today, and even read about some that we haven't had time to get to. And please do keep adding to it yourself. I wish we had time to cover all these questions today, but we don't. Uh, I know most of you on the line have some great answers to add, so please help answer some of these that we've not been able to cover. So we're down to about two minutes. I want to give a couple of really quick, quick last reminders for folks and thank yous, and then I'm going to pass it back to Dave and Peter for one lightning round question to close out the day. So first, the reminders, a huge thank you to both David Hohenthal and Peter Flinker for being on the line and sharing their wisdom with us. It's been a great conversation. Uh, some of your questions have tackled topics that we've covered recently in this call series or will be covering in the next couple of months. So if your question wasn't answered, take a look on our website. In particular, some people are asking questions about how to do outreach and communications, which we just tackled last month. And I hope if you're joining us for the first time today, you'll come back and join us for next month's call and ongoing calls as well. And remember, next month we are encouraging people to create listening parties. You can create one just like the folks in Seguin, Texas did today. Get a whole bunch of people in the room, and we promise it will be a lot more fun. So I hope you'll all do that and be back with us next month. Um, in the meantime, let me ask David and Peter one more question. We often close these calls with the same question, which is really when you hang up the phone today and walk out the door, what's the best thing you can do to get started right now or the first step you can take to start down this path in your community? Uh, Peter or Dave, either of you want to start us off? Hmm. <laughs> so go for it, Peter. I don't hear Peter speaking up, so I'll, you know, I'll just jump in. Um, I'd say one of the best things that anyone can do is actually uh, wrangling a project like this is to really get your head around what it means to have a good set of values to be used in a, in a planning process and what it means to use values to help support your decision-making process within that project. Um, it's so important to carry that thread through a whole project and not, uh, not abandon them as soon as you get past the visioning stage. So do some homework and, and get, a, get, get your head into that as much as you can and really understand what it means to, to do that. Great. Peter, think, are you still with us? Yeah, I think for my part, um, it's, it's, a, it's a hard question, like what are you going to have for lunch today? Um, but I think probably the, one of the most successful things you do is just go out and talk to people one-on-one. -on -one. I think often as planners, whether we're professionals or, or working in a town or volunteers, we, we want to set up a process and then pursue that process. And we, we get bogged down in, you know, just designing the whole thing before we actually do anything. Um, but if you look at, like I go to a lot of conferences and talk to people about public participation, and one of the most successful things is just to go out on the street and talk to people one-on-one. -on -one. 
and often in you know, half an hour on a nice evening, you can have more conversations than you're going to have if you spend a month organizing a meeting. And people are much freer to talk about uh, the things that really concern them. And that's often something that's very easy and it doesn't take any great deal of preparation or professional skill to do. Uh, but to, So maybe I would say the first thing is you know, sit down with your group locally and come up with a list of questions and then just go out and start talking to people. And I think based on that, you'll learn some things that you can put into a more formal planning process later on. Great. Wonderful advice. So with that, we will call it a day. Thank you again so much to all of you for joining us. I hope we'll hear you again next week on our line. And remember, you'll be getting an email from us shortly with a link back to the Google Doc and the podcast. And a huge thank you again to Peter and David for being on the line with us.